I'll ask you to make your way to Matthew Make your way to Matthew chapter 2. Begin our reading in verse 1. There we go. You can hear me now, right? Verizon commercial. Glad you're here today. I'm glad the dusting didn't keep you away. But I'm sure the cold kept some away, and I totally understand that. And the new year on the horizon. Today we're going to talk about worship. To Christ the King. Matthew chapter 2. Are you ready for the reading? The Bible says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd My people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, and notice the satanic deceit, that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Matthew 2 is a reminder that our traditional Christmas story often needs some tweaking to it, doesn't it? We know that some of our songs miss the mark. We need not think that while the cattle were lowing, the baby was not crying in a way in a manger. Thus, we have something that's never happened before. If the baby didn't cry... But even We Three Kings needs a little bit of tweaking. When you get here, there could have been 50 kings, for all we know. It's just that we think since there's three gifts, obviously there must have been three kings. That's not the case at all. But sometimes we have to debunk some of our Christmas carols, not to ruin your holiday season, but to help you to let the Word of God obliterate any kind of false notions that we may have of something that is as important as the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. The main idea of our passage this morning is that we ought to respond like the Magi with extravagant praise and worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, the King. That's the lesson today. That's what we should call the central proposition of the text. The CPT is this. 
Nations will come to Jesus and worship Him. Magi will come and worship the King. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 60 that it's going to happen. The nations will come to Him. We ought to respond the same way the Magi did. Extravagant praise, worship, giving gifts to the King who deserves it. The passage before us is about worship. It's about honoring Christ with the dignity that He so rightfully deserves. It contains adoration and it contains praise to God. Most importantly, it's ascribing dignity to the King of Kings. What comes to your mind when you think about worship or true worship? I think our prayer should be, as we're on the precipice of a new year, as of tomorrow at 12.01 or 12 a.m. tonight, you'll be in a new year. I think what should be on our minds is, Lord, how can Father... Help me ascribe the amount of dignity that's due to my Savior's name. Help me this coming year to live in such a way that I ascribe to the Lord Jesus Christ the dignity that He truly deserves. Isn't that a great prayer? Hello. Are y'all in a sleep or a slumber or something like that? I mean, just think about it. That's why God created you to begin with, to worship Him. And that's why He saved you, is so that you could worship the king. We can learn so much from our passage regarding worship. Kind of breaks your heart that you see Herod's response and the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, of course, then we see the Magi and their response, but we can learn positive and negative lessons concerning the entrance of God into our world. We can learn that from this passage of Scripture. It's phenomenal as you read through and as you think about it. We learn both positive and negative lessons about the Lord Jesus coming into this world. Matthew has an apologetic reason for starting off saying Bethlehem. You, don't, you do realize that because they would, Jesus will be referred to as Jesus of Nazareth. But Matthew wants to clear that up early and let you know quickly that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He's doing this for a purpose to make sure that he lines up with the Word of God and lets us know that Micah's prophecy assures us that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, and he was. It is preeminently the place where David came from, Bethlehem. That's why Christ was born there. It's also unique in its presentation of the gospel. Why is that? Because if you read Matthew 1, you'll find out that there are Gentiles in the genealogy of Christ. We've got women that were uh, from all walks of life. Harlotry, uh, adultery, but yet they find themselves, as a matter of fact, everybody you read in the genealogy, guess what you've come to the conclusion of? They're all sinners. You think about their life, their story, but then you see the pristine name of Jesus on the page. In the genealogy. Isn't that awesome? Who knew no sin? But here we have uh, Rahab and Ruth and uh, Bathsheba in the genealogy of Christ. But not only are they in his genealogy, but in Matthew's gospel, one of the major points is that Gentiles are going to worship the king. Think about this, folks. Where we are in the life of our church today. Were that not true, you wouldn't be here today. Any Jews in here today? Raise your hand. All right, you're all Gentiles, every one of you, okay? So Gentiles will worship the king, and here we have in the Word of God that taking place. 
the Magi are most definitively Gentiles. And we actually see Isaiah's prophecy come into fruition where Gentiles will come streaming up to Zion to worship God. Isn't that awesome? So we see it already at the beginning of Matthew's gospel. Herod, as you're introduced to, will attempt to kill the king. As a matter of fact, I think when you see Herod, you ought to put his name in italics because he's a pretender king. The real king should be underscored. His name is Jesus. Right? He's a pretender king. We know this. I talked about it before. But here is uh, Herod who's upon the hands of Satan and he's actually doing battle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. We see this. And now Luke tells us how they got to Bethlehem and it was because of a census. But Matthew just starts with the actual event in the days of Herod. Again, the real king is Jesus. Who is this guy, Herod? Well, he's Herod the Great and he was probably born somewhere around 70 B.C., so he's getting on up there in age. If we mark the birth of Christ at 4 B.C., I know you want to say 1, but it's probably not the case. If we say around 4 B.C., the guy was in his 60s, and his dynasty had lasted for quite some time, and it would last all the way up to 100 A.D. If you've ever studied history, you know you had the Hasmonean dynasty, and it was faltering and going away. And then you have the Herodians meshing with the Romans, the Herodian dynasty. And so they're putting a Idumene, a descendant of Esau, an Edomite on the throne, who is a hybrid. He's half Jew, half Edomite. He's, he's not purebred, and here he is serving as a pretender king. He's of the offspring of Esau. What does Malachi say about Esau? Well, these people were God-haters, But according to Matthew chapter 1, God hates them too. You say, oh my goodness. Well, it says, Jacob hath I loved, and Esau hath I hated. That's another theological sermon you're not going to hear today. But you've got the Edomites. One time on the Senate floor, Augustus said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. Because if if you were his son, you were in a dangerous position because he may think you want to take his throne he killed three of his sons, folks. He take this, that's the kind of ruthless man that this was. And then we learn of the Magi. It actually reads the Magi from the rising. In all likelihood, with all scholars and studying the word, in all likelihood, these guys were astrologers from Babylon. They're not theologians. They're not rabbis. They were magicians. Now... Not in the line of David Copperfield. Okay? Yet, it is where you get your English word magician. It is taken from this Greek word. They would have practiced what was forbidden in the holy word of God. In Isaiah 47, he actually mocks those who look at the stars for guidance. That's interesting, isn't it? Jeremiah condemns the use of astrology and astrologers. So when all of you Facebook lovers see someone put their horoscope there, just place beside it Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of the Lord, and he speaks to you, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord, learn not the way of the nations, nor be dismayed at the signs of the heavens, because the nations are dismayed at them, for the customs of the peoples are vanity. Did y'all get that clear? Some of you are quiet because you must believe in your horoscopes. Forget it. 
It's vanity. Amen? Amen. Y'all kind of sleeping on me this morning. I mean, I think this uh, holiday season has got the best of you. I think that if you have that belief in horoscopes, it's a clear lack of faith in God on your part. So trust God and His Word. So what, what else is fascinating about these guys? Not only from the rising or coming from Babylon and traveling that far, it's also fascinating that that's what Daniel became when he was in Babylon. Y'all remember that story? I'll probably preach through Daniel uh, soon. But Daniel becomes one of these magicians in their court. Do you think these guys ever did a few Bible studies? Do you think Daniel ever sat down with this string of magicians? And you think over a 500-year time frame when Daniel met with them and taught them that it was possible that they learned something about the Word of God and something about the King, the true King that's going to be born? I guarantee you it happened that way. So they asked this question, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now since they're traveling from a long way off, they will go where for the answer? I mean, it's common sense. You go to the holy city, right? Uh, You go to Jerusalem and they go there and it's the logical place, it's the capital city. And if a king has been born, surely they'll know about it in Jerusalem. And surely Herod and his court will know And the basis of their question is that they have seen his star in the east. And in the Greek, this is literally says, his star rising. That's why they're asking the question. Do you think we have an explanation for where this comes from? How many of you remember the story of Balak in the Old Testament? How many of you remember that story? The Israelites are growing in number and they're flourishing. And Balak is not happy in Moab. He's afraid of the people of God. So he asked Balaam to do what to God's people? Curse them, right? And God has a sense of awesome humor, right? What does God do? He says to Balaam, you're not going to curse the Israelites. You're going to bless them. And in the midst of that blessing, just take note of what what Balaam says, directed by the God of the universe, is going to take place. Thus, I believe this is the literal prophecy that the Magi had in their mind and heart when they moved their way 500 years later. Well, a lot later than Numbers. But they moved that way. This was the particular one. Listen to the word. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Bor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty fallen down with his eyes uncovered, I see him. But now I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheath. Edom shall be dispossessed, Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. So here is this incredible prophecy given by Balaam 
who was a musician who was supposed to curse the people of God, and yet God sovereignly causes him to bless the people of Israel. And in the blessing, God gives this phenomenal prophecy that a star is going to rise in Bethlehem. A star from Jacob. What an awesome God we have. Of course, Herod is a theological dipstick. Right? I mean, he is an Edomite. But he doesn't care at all that his head is about to be crushed, does he? He doesn't even think about that. The only thing that he's thinking of is somebody's about to take my throne. So we're introduced to a star, and we have to say, what, what's the star about? Was it a comet? Was it a planetary alignment? Was it a nova? <sighs> I think all of these explanations fall short. I think God brought about a supernatural phenomenon, Right? that they associated with a prophecy given in the Word of God to them by Balaam. In the Word of God, they associated that with the prophecy, and they headed toward Jerusalem. I risk of generalization to warn you. I think people who are preoccupied and exercised with beating their brains out about how the star worked, or about how uh, the Red Sea was parted, or how manna fell from heaven... Or how Jonah was kept alive in the belly of a fish for three days are generally people that I would call that have a mentality for the marginal. Right? I mean, they're, they're interested in the next article, in the next book, and they're fascinated with how all these things took place. And they're, it's almost like they're trying to figure out if God is real or true or not just simply because of the event they're looking at. You ever met people like that? They hand you the next article on planetary alignments and try to figure out how the star led them to, to Bethlehem. I think, folks, oftentimes you don't see in these people a deep treasuring of the central things that are very, very important. Like the gospel, right? And the holiness of God and the ugliness of sin and the helplessness of man and the death of Christ. How about justification by faith alone? How about the work of the Spirit? How about Christ's return and the final judgment? It's easy for us to get sidetracked about why the star did this or what the star looked like or what was the planetary alignment or what exactly was this about. But the fact of the matter is there's only one person that can handle the intentionality of a star and his name is God. And he's the one that's leading the Magi to worship the king. Again, what was their intent? The Bible says their intent was to worship. This is awesome. Now get this. We've got these pagan Gentile astrologers who are reading Balaam's prophecy. And they streak off toward Jerusalem to worship the king of kings. Now remember, they're asking the most evil egomaniac to ever rule on the planet, where is this child being born? So actually, the text says that all of Jerusalem was, Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem. I wonder why. Well, this cat might kill everybody. He is going to kill all babies two and under, boys, in Bethlehem, right? So when you see those, that terminology, all of Jerusalem is troubled, no wonder. you got this evil egomaniac. They may all die because of the king that's been born over in Bethlehem. But I would also say to you that there's a good chance that this begins the narrative in Matthew's mind to remind us that the place of Jerusalem itself is going to be against Jesus. Right? 
All Jerusalem is troubled. And we know that that's going to be the very center of opposition for Jesus Christ. In fact, the most intense opposition that he will face will be by the religious leaders who were supposed to know. The very ones who read the prophecy to Herod are the very ones that are going to give him the most opposition in Jerusalem. So maybe we should see this as a preamble to the suffering of the Son of God. He'll be crucified. Where? In Jerusalem. Now, of course, Herod is no Bible scholar, but he brings together all his chief priests and scribes, and he does so. Why? Again, he's a theological dipstick. He has no idea about anything, and he finds out. He asks them to let him know where the child was going to be born. Remember, the Sadducees didn't believe anything. They're the liberals of the day. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the afterlife. The Pharisees were more conservative. They believed it all, given by the Old Testament. But Herod, again, asked them. And the scribes respond pretty much like this. This is a no-brainer. Because Malachi, uh, Micah 5.2 says that it will be in Bethlehem where uh, the, the Messiah will be born. And he adds also, if you notice that when we read it, he adds 2 Samuel 5, 2. So out of view of Bethlehem, Ephrathah, one shall come who will rule. And then he adds, but he will shepherd his people. Well, that shepherd his people is found in 2 Samuel 5, 2. And why is that important? Because Herod was supposed to be a king that shepherded the people, but he didn't. But Jesus Christ is the real shepherd. The chief shepherd. So there's that reminder in the word. So the prophecy is astonishing. It stood out for the rabbis for 500 years. Just think about this. These guys are telling Herod where the Messiah is supposed to be born. And that he's supposed to shepherd his people. This is 500 years later. Israel would be under her oppressor. And God would raise up a leader whose goings forth are from all eternity. And he would be the eternal one. Right? Remember Micah 5.2? He's the ancient of days. He has no beginning. This one is coming down to be born in Bethlehem. And what, how awesome this is. He comes to a place that is very insignificant. Small, insignificant city. In most cases, during this time frame, Bethlehem did not even make the maps. And yet the God of eternity comes down to be born in Bethlehem. Bruce Walkie says this about Bethlehem. He chose Bethlehem to exhibit, paradoxically, the Messiah's inauspicious and yet at the same time, the Messiah's most auspicious origins. It reaches all the way back to the pure springs of Jesse and David. It's a demonstration that God exalts the lowly and the humble, right? And he pushes down the pride. Now, what does Herod say? Do you remember a date that you first saw this star? What is he trying to do? He's trying to figure out exactly what to set the age parameters to in order to make sure he kills this king born in Bethlehem. He's utterly wicked and he plots. And just think about this deceit. The text is about worship, right, church family? What does he say? Tell me so that I can go worship him. But God in his amazing providence puts the star back before them and guides them. Most scholars believe the star at this point was more like a pillar of fire that led Moses in the wilderness and the people. Maybe so. I don't know. Verse 10 is so explicit. What do they do? They rejoice greatly and exceedingly you got to appreciate the setting here in Matthew. You've got this 
Edomite king that wants to kill the king of the Jews. And you have this theological guild of scribes and Pharisees that are going along with Herod. It's it's amazing to me that they're just not impressed. And they don't really care. It's like they give the verse and they get back to work. We're often like that, aren't we? We're just not too impressed with the king. They weren't too impressed at all. They just went back to work. No enthusiasm about the eternal God coming in human flesh at the time they were giving it, within a year, and they're not interested at all. The enthusiasm was with pagan astrologers from the East, Gentiles. You know, Matthew's going to start talking about how that the gospel... Uh, comes to people who are the most unlikely to receive it. And all the way through Matthew's gospel, he's going to do that. The, one, the very ones who should have enthusiastically received the gospel of Jesus Christ were the very ones who didn't. And the ones that we look at that would say, no, there's no way that's a prospect for heaven are the very ones who come to him, are the very ones who need him. And, of course, Herod's edict would have us believe that you, Jesus was probably between the ages of one and two at this point. Thus, there's no way the Magi came to the manger scene in Bethlehem. Right? That we, I don't want to ruin your holiday, but it's just not the case, okay? He's probably between one of two years of age. What a wonderful scene. These Babylonians, I want to think they're kind of decked out in new age gear. Right? They're not Jews. And here they are, just right before the king. They don't say... Are you kind of interested in how the end of the world is going to take place? That's not what they say. They're in wonder and, and, and homage. And the literal word worship here is to fall down before him and lick the dust of the earth. They're on their faces before this king. And they're pagan astrologers. Isn't that amazing? It's great. I think no wonder Mary, Luke records that Mary treasured and pondered these things in her heart. Here's the irony of the whole thing. These Gentiles actually fall down to the ground and worship Jesus Christ. I'm not going to read it because of time, but Psalm 72, 8 through 11 tells us that this will happen. Psalm 72, 8 through 11. They also brought gifts that were fit for a king. God in His providence was protecting His Son. We see clearly God governing all the details of nature and everything else to get His Son to be born in Bethlehem, and to protect him. This is an amazing event. And he didn't come as a Davidic king riding on a white stallion with armies with him going through the streets of Jerusalem. He didn't come with any fanfare whatsoever. Here we see the God of eternity working among ordinary people in a small, seemingly insignificant place. But we see God as an executive working out all of his plan to be accomplished. Now, can I give you some application? Do you know the story? Do I need to go back over it? You got Herod, got this pretender king in opposition wanting to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. You got the scribes and the Pharisees who are at best uninterested in who was born in Bethlehem. And then you got the Magi, pagan astrologers who come and bow down before the Lord. Here's the first thing. Worship is reserved for Jesus Christ. Can we say amen? And Jesus should be honored as much. As a matter of fact, in chapter 1, Matthew's trying to get you to honor Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, he's going to show you that he gets the honor he deserves. Because kings are coming to bow down. 
Where is he who was born the king of the Jews? It's about a newborn child destined to be the king of the Jews. I think the wise men probably worship better than they knew. And that's okay. They fall on their faces and they worship the king. Is the Bible clear? Is the Bible not clear that there's only one who should be worshipped? What's the first commandment? You shall... And Jesus summed that up by saying, Love the Lord your God. Is it, is, it, is it not taught clearly in the Bible that the Lord Jesus Christ is Yahweh God? Yes, so that means that worship is reserved for Jesus Christ. He is Yahweh who will save and has saved, if you're saved today, His people from their sins. He is Emmanuel, God with us. The appropriate thing to do was to bow down, and it is for us to bow down and to worship the King. We are followers of Jesus Christ, and that means we are to worship and obey Him. This is the narrative, and it's supposed to drive this home for everybody sitting in this church today. If you're hearing, hearing the Word, think of this for a moment. The Bible says that at the name of Jesus, every knee Say it. Shall bow. And every tongue shall... Folks, it's going to happen. Unfortunately, if you bow the knee when it's everlastingly too late, it will be for eternal judgment in hell. But every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That's going to happen. So here, we are encouraged, along with the Magi, that worship is reserved for Jesus Christ and Him alone. Think of this for a moment. Are you with Herod? Or are you with the indifferent Jews? Or are you with the Christ-worshipping Gentiles? How would you view your own life? Who are you with? Who do you worship? Who do you follow? Who's your king? Who do you bow down to? Now in our world of seeker-sensitive churches where we're trying to do our best to draw crowds, we can easily dumb down the fact that the God that we're preaching about is the God to be worshipped. Amen? Not just to be tipped, not just to tip your hat to Him, not just to give Him some kind of uh, superficial loyalty. We're talking about the God of the universe that deserves all of our praise and glory and worship and honor. And so it's very easy for us to think that we have to fashion the church so that we can win the world. And all the time, God is telling the church to get out of the church and win the world. Right? I love what Grant Osborne makes. He makes this statement. The task of the church is not to be seeker-sensitive, but to be seeker-challenging. For until you obey and worship the Lord Jesus Christ, you stand with Herod rather than the Magi. You know, Psalm 95 is that awesome text on praise the Lord, worship the Lord, come before Him with praise and thanksgiving. And then halfway through that psalm, he says, don't act like the rebellious Israelites who turned their back on God. In other words, folks, you can come in here and sing all day long, but if you don't obey God, you've never worshipped. You can sing, you can come to this church, you can sit in a pew, you can go to Sunday school, you can even teach a Sunday school class. But unless you're obeying God in your life, that's why he says it like he does. 
Do all these things in Psalm 95. Lift your voice. Praise God. But when he gets down to about verse 7, he says, Don't harden your hearts like those in the rebellion. In other words, if your worship, what you call worship, doesn't lead to obedience in life, then you haven't worshipped God. I don't hear a single amen. But we think that just coming into church and jumping around and lifting our voices, that we're worshiping God. What are you doing Monday through Saturday? Are you obeying the directives from the Word of God in your life? Are you following Him as your King? That's what it means, to re- that's what it means when we say worship is rever- reserved for Christ. He is the Lord of your life and you are following Him in obedience. That's worship. So worship is reserved for Jesus Christ. Who do you stand with? Do you stand with Christ, haters? Or are you standing with those who love Christ and worship Him? Number two, Jesus is to be worshipped by all nations of the world. Folks, these were foreigners that Matthew was speaking to, not shepherds. And why is he doing this? Because he wants to, pray, he wants to portray Jesus as the universal Messiah for all nations, not just Jews. I'm thankful for that, aren't you? Because I'm an American. And I'm very thankful that the gospel was for me and is for you. I mean, here the very first worshipers are court magicians, astrologers. They're not from Israel, but from the east. They were Gentiles, unclean. And this was repeated in the Old Testament over and over again. But again, Isaiah 60, verse 3, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Here's the lesson. God is guiding foreigners to Christ to worship Him. That's why Katie and Kyle are over in India. Right? That's why you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. That's why we do. That's why we give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. Right? Because God has an intent here to bring the gospel to the people of all nations. That is the goal. And he starts it off in Matthew with Gentiles coming far from the east in Babylon. Matthew shows God influencing the stars in the sky to get the Magi to Bethlehem. If you back up a little bit, it shows our God sovereignly calling for a census just out of the blue so that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Folks, that's not an accident. That's the superintendent work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's design. His aim is that all nations worship His Son. You know, that's God's desire for those who work in your workplace. That they worship the Son. As John 4.23 says, Such the Father seeks to worship Him. Worship is reserved for Jesus. Worship by all nations of the world. Number three, Jesus is troubling to people who do not want to worship Him. That's probably not the main point of this narrative, but it's pretty clear, isn't it? Uh, Herod was troubled. It's inescapable, as the story goes, that Herod is not only afraid, but he's ticked off, and he wants to do anything he can to destroy the Lord. And notice again how the chief priests respond. Just indifference. Herod's troubled, wants to kill him, but the scribes and Pharisees are simply indifferent. They're not interested. They don't want to worship the true God. You know, some do nothing about Jesus and others are threatened by him. And that's true in our world today, isn't it? It's true in our world today. This is, this is the story of Herod. He's actually afraid, so he schemes, does everything he can to get rid of Jesus. He's ruthless, but Jesus is a shepherd. And number four... Worshiping Jesus means ascribing Him worth and dignity by giving sacrificial gifts. And we see, as the song said, gold, say it, 
frankincense, and myrrh. And we've, we've got these gifts that are given. And have you ever thought about this for a moment? Are the gifts, in a way, an assistance to God to help Him? Could we say that? Well, I read one scholar who said God was working behind the scenes in order to get Mary and Joseph to Egypt by giving these incredible gifts. That could be true. They're given a lot of money to get them to Egypt. That could be the case. I don't know what the scenario is, but the Bible says that gifts cannot be given to our God as bribes. Deuteronomy 10, 17. In other words, God doesn't need your assistance. He, it's not that on this particular time that these gifts needed to be given to God to help Him, to assist Him, because that's not the case at all. But how are these gifts worshipped? Well, we know gold and frankincense and myrrh. We know that gold is for royalty. And in Matthew's purpose, Matthew's trying to show that Jesus is king. And he is. Gold is fit for the king, right? And speaks of his royalty. And then we know that frankincense is pure incense in its origin. It's a gift of God. In the Old Testament, it was kept in the sanctuary. And it was particularly used for an offering to God. It was something that related to worship, here we are again, and service. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What do you know about myrrh? Well, it was given to him as an incense here at the cradle. It's also going to be offered to him on the cross, mixed with wine. And then it's going to be used, according to Joseph of Arimathea, it's going to be used how? For his burial. So this is highlighting... The fact that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came down for one reason, and that's to die. To pay the penalty for your sin and mine. That's why He came. And it's identifying whereas kingship and royalty are deity, and then this one is highlighting humanity. And we can talk, talk about all those things, and surely there's meaning in those. But I want to remind you that these gifts are also intensifiers of our desire to have Christ be Lord of all of life. What does that mean? Well, gold, frankincense, and myrrh are expensive things. But we don't worship things, folks. We worship Christ. And as, he, as they laid these things down, they were saying to him, we're putting down the most expensive things in all of life because we'd rather have you than these things. They're intensifiers for our love for God, much like fasting is. Why do we fast? Well, so that we can impress the people who go to church with us. Right? Well, if you do that, you've done your alms before men, and you've got your reward already. Jesus said that. Why do we fast? Because we want to lay aside something that we live by, so that we in turn focus more on the God who gives us what we live by. The very giver, right? So fasting is an intensifier. It helps us to to lay aside the things that we usually cling to and helps us focus on God. Well, here they are giving these things, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. They're laying them before the feet of Jesus and bowing down. Why? Because we don't worship these things, or do we? Or do we worship these things in the U.S.? Oh, me. We can, can't we? And we're all guilty. Who are you worshiping? Uh, so, God, you're my treasure. And that's what we're saying by giving these gifts. You are my king. 
All the nations of the world will come and worship and bow down before you. And whatever opposition I may have, I'm going to joyfully ascribe to you the dignity that is due your name. And now in conclusion, are you ready for me to wrap this up? Now some of you are wondering, how in the world did you do, we did a couple songs and you jumped up and preached. Because I wanted more time. No. (laughs) That's not true. We want you to understand that we don't have to do things one way all the time. But secondly, we wanted you to take part in worshiping God, having heard a sermon about worship. Are y'all listening? And how your response was going to be. Now, in conclusion, if you can't see joyful, reverent worship here, something's wrong with you. And what I want you to know is that this passage has the potential to change your life. It It has the potential to make you think differently about yourself, about your job, about your family, about the entire world that you are in. God has a global purpose. And what's that global purpose? Glad praise in Christ Jesus for all nations. That's exactly what God's purpose is. He's here in this text directing nature. He is here drawing nations. He sends His Son into the world so that we would bring Him glory. He came here to make you a worshiper. The people of God... Regardless of your personality, regardless of any other thing, you might give an excuse. You ought to sing and you ought to smile. Right? Because the king has come. You ought to sing and you ought to smile. And you ought, it doesn't matter. Don't tell me about your personality clashes and about your personality problems. I just can't sing, preacher. You can smile and you can sing why the king has come. We ought to get excited when we talk about Jesus. Worship involves joyful, affectionate, uninhibited praise to God. We ought to be overwhelmed and bowing down in homage and humble worship to God. And after God sent His Son into the world, don't miss this, He sent the church into the world. Why? Because God intends for all the people of the world to worship Him. And you've got a part in that. So He sent He he sends His Son into the world so that you worship Him. And then He's sending this church into the world. Why? For a global purpose. Yes, it's in this community. But yes, it's to the furthest outreaches of anywhere you can think about where people live. That's the global purpose of our God. The God who 2,000 years ago sovereignly arranged the stars in the sky. The God who sovereignly directed the Magi to Bethlehem. This God also arranged every detail of your life. Y'all believe that? Every detail. Your family, your job, your school, your background, your relationships. And God wants to use you to make the glad praise of Jesus Christ known to all the peoples of the world. Whether you're talking about your co-workers uh, or you're talking about a student who may be leading other students, even at the high school or middle school, to have glad worship and praise to Jesus Christ. You do understand that is the greatest motive for evangelism. We have joy in God because He forgave our sins, and we should want others to have the same joy in God that we have. And if you don't tell people about Jesus, then that means you don't have joy in God. And, but maybe your joy is in gold and frankincense. That's not going to do it, folks. I'm just telling you, those things are fleeting, and they're all going to burn up. The only thing that's going to make it and last is the church of the living God. Period. So every believer has a responsibility. Every believer has a privilege to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. My plea with you as a church is live for this purpose. Be willing to die for this purpose. Give your life 
Give your possessions and your plans and your dreams for this cosmic global mission of God so that all the nations of the world will bow down and worship Him. That's the plan. We want to be a part of it, right? So let's worship the Lord.